of your eye. Huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Season two, episode two. Yeah, talking a western, Bone Tomahawk, and not your father's western. No, it's really not. Hey, before we get started, by the way, I have to give a shout out to a special fan. We have a fan. I had a fan approach me in the wilds on the street. So shout out to Jack. (laughs) And you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Ran into him after uh, Dr. Strange. He comes up, are you? And I'm like, yes, who are you? (laughs) I didn't even recognize him. He didn't look as tall as he used to. It's because you're growing, Steve. It must be. I hit my growth spurt when I hit puberty last week. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Jack. Yeah. Shout out to Jack for actually listening to us and then saying he enjoyed it. At least he's a smart young man to lie to the old guys. So appreciate that. So anyway, back to the Bone Tomahawk, which is not your father's Western, at least not my father's Western. It's not, although as problematic as it turned out to be, it could be your father's Western. Oh, Um, really? The movie is a collaboration between the U.S. and the U.K. It was done in 2016. And when I say collaboration, it was directed, acted, written, and shot in the United States. But all the financing came from Great Britain. Because so, Great Britain has personal experience with lots of great Westerns. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure why. That's a um, weird one. But we seem to get that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And this is... It hits that little bizarre niche considered Western horror. And there's very few out there, but a lot of times they tend to be well-done films. Yeah, it really was. It had a big name, at least one big name, though there's several people I recognized. Oh, it had lots of big names. The box office on this was $382,579 on a $1.8 million budget. So this did not make a whole lot of money. No. And for uh, those of you that like no-name Western, spaghetti Western, Sergio Leone and stuff, it is not that. It, it almost could be reskinned in different types of movies. It's a pretty, it could be a sci-fi in an outer space easily, which I guess a lot of Westerns could. But Star uh, Wars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Firefly. Yeah. But there's... There's not a lot of the Western tropes. It seemed very accurate in most spots, though. Yeah, there's a couple, and we'll get to it. But you're right. It's a Western... Shoot. I'll think of it before the end of the show. But Yeah. This premiered at Fantastic Fest on October 1st in 2015. The movie is very well put together. And it's reflected in the fact that it got 20 award nominations and it won nine awards. That includes the Catalonian International Film Festival, Native American Film Festival of the Southeast, Gerard May Film Festival, which we've talked about in the past, Fangora Chainsaw Awards. That's interesting. So it won an award that's sponsored, hosted by Native Americans. Yeah. That's really cool because I did make a comment that I'm like, wow. It's a little tough because it's very not PC, but I bet it's extremely accurate to the time period. 
and that's where we get into the that's where we get into the whole mess of everything. Oh, okay. The film received mostly positive reviews. Some people criticize it because it's a really long movie. It's about two hours and fifteen minutes, yeah. or their pa- or the pacing. They felt that it was a little slow, and it, it, it yeah. If you thought Sam and Frodo walking to Mordor was a while, wait till you yes. walk across the desert. <laughs> yeah, the bigger issue in this is the racism that's built into the plot, and it's not so much that it was that the guy who wrote it went out to intentionally to be racist. But his writing is kind of lazy, and it's lazy enough to promulgate racist tropes. However, this same kind of lazy writing-based racism, it's a common issue, and it can be found in all kinds of horror films, or expanded into themes of cultures and stereotypes. It happens all the time. And Um, the time period, though, I got what I got across from the acting, from the story, is they weren't trying to make a point of it, it was just, that's how everybody was, how everybody thought a Western town type thing. Is it really, that they weren't trying to be racist, which I don't even know if the term existed back then. It was just, that's how they grew up. That's how they thought. That's how life was. And they probably didn't even question it. And I, that's what I got out of what yeah. I was hearing. I actually watched like a 15-minute screed about how you should not watch this movie because it's so racist, just to hear what the guy had to say. And he makes some decent points, and then he makes some that are just over the top. And as we get to him throughout the movie, as we're talking about it, I'll bring him up. Well, I'm definitely of the camp that we shouldn't rewrite what happened in the past, even if we're trying to change it now. That, That doesn't make sense to me, and I don't think it helps. Being able to see that type of thing with a hundred year difference, almost people are more relaxed, they accept it more, and they can see it better. If you did a modern movie set in New York with gangs and stuff, it probably wouldn't have the same impact, the racism, as this movie did. My thought and opinion, not been psychologically studied or anything, but... You should be psychologically studied. Thank you. Yeah, they had me tested. I'm not crazy. This movie was shot in Malibu. In 21 days. Wow. Start to finish, when the camera started, it took them 21 days to shoot this. Poof. Uh, There's not a lot of special effects and stuff, so it wasn't like a lot of post-production. Right. Yeah. The culture clashes in this episode occur between humans and race of humans called the troglodytes. But it's also between, you have this guy named Bruder, and he is this kind of worldly gentleman who has moved into the town and the citizens of the town itself because he considers himself above them all and it comes up several times and bruder is also you have culture clashes between bruder and anybody who is not like caucasian (laughs) yes every other race is inferior to him in his mind and i'm glad you mentioned that because i I made note of that too i'm like wow there's multiple culture clashes and it's even a little bit which we mentioned in one of the other movies the townspeople versus the outlying people that live in farms and stuff. There's a little bit of that between Kurt Russell's character and whatever his name was with the leg. I didn't write it down. Sorry. There's some of that in there too. Yeah. This was a passion project. Real. Um, I wouldn't have guessed. That. <laughs> and it leaves, it, it leaves you with this independent feel to the movie. Yeah. yeah. And it technically is an independent, because it wasn't distributed or funded by any major studios or distributors. 
it has actors that are A-list actors who are getting paid far less than they normally would because they liked the script. So it's important to note that it looks like a big, big budget film, and it really wasn't. Wow. Okay. It was written by a guy named S. Craig Zoller, and he wrote and directed this film. It was his first. He's a published author. So he was a writer before he was a director. He doesn't have a brother in Cleveland, does he? <laughs> I have no idea where he's from. There's not exactly a big, you know, popular name. And the, there's an artist up in Cleveland that did my book covers named Zoller. Oh. I'll have to find out. Kurt Russell had run... Kurt Russell had read one of his earlier books and loved it so much that he provided the cover quote for the book. Nice. And so when Zoller was doing this movie, he decided to reach out to Kurt Russell, who was interested in doing it. Zoller has written a total of five films and directed three of them. And this is the only title of his you're going to know of the movies that he directed. This movie represents his rough draft of the script. He never wrote anything else. He just sat down and wrote the whole thing out. And I think perhaps some of the controversy that surrounds this film might have been resolved if he'd gone back and taken a second read through. But, had somebody else look at it. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. If it's your passion project, you want what you want. Oh, sure. Yeah. It stars Kurt Russell. We're talking Wyatt Earp from Tombstone here. He plays Sheriff Hunt. He's been in 102 different films, starting with Dennis the Menace in 1962. Wow. He was in The Man from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, The Virginian, Lost in Space, The Fugitive, Daniel Boone, Gunsmoke, Hawaii 5 Hit his stride in movies with Escape from New York, The Thing. He was in that. Yeah. Horror, great horror pedigree there. Silkwood, Big Trouble in Little China, Tango and Cash, Backdraft, Captain Ron. Tombstone, we've mentioned. He was in the original Stargate. Yeah. A Grindhouse, Furious 7, The Hateful Eight, yep. Deepwater Horizon, The Fate of the Furious, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, F9, The Fast Chronicles. I, I, Recently, he was Santa Claus, too, on the Christmas Chronicles on Netflix. Good shows. Oh, okay. He was also had a, a little blip in What If, playing... Ego again. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he plays Sheriff Hunt. The other, like, made, I don't want to say major star, but like a big role in this movie is a guy named Arthur, who is played by Camp Patrick Wilson. Yeah. He's been in 57 films, lots of them The Phantom of the Opera, Hard Candy, which is on the short list for another season here. All right. Running with Scissors, Lakeview Terrace, The Watchman, American Dad. The A-Team, Insidious, Prometheus, The Conjuring. It wasn't until I was making this list that I realized, oh my God, he's the guy from Insidious and The Conjuring yes, series. Yes, there you go. I knew I recognized I'm like, oh yeah, he's one of those faces that I recognize and can never place. That's it. Oh, yeah. That was it. And of course, Insidious Chapter 2, The Fargo TV, Batman v Superman, Conjuring 2, Insidious The Last Key, The Nun. He was in Aquaman, the Annabelle film. They're all tied into The Conjuring. He was also in The Tall Grass. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's the dad who goes crazy in The Tall Grass. So, spoilers. If you, I know you didn't expect <laughs> well, show's about spoilers, so. Matthew Fox plays Brood, and he says he enjoyed making this film more than any other film he's been involved with. Nice. He had a great in fact, dad, so. <laughs> yeah. 
He liked it so much. This is the last project he's worked on worked on up until recently. Oh, wow. So he took a hiatus. He's been in 24 total films. Once you might know, he was in Wings. He was in Speed Racer, Lost, and World War Z. Okay. So he's been in a few things. Richard Jenkins plays Chicory. He's been in 115 films, including Silverado, Spencer for Hire, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Witches of Eastwick. Richard Jenkins is one of those guys who tends to show up in classier films. Right. Then, yeah. He's uh, another my, one I totally recognize, but you're always that side character. Yeah. Yeah. The Indian in the Cupboard. The Manhattan Project, There's Something About Mary, The Mod Squad, Snow Falling on Cedars, Burn After Reading, The Tale of Despero, Eat, Pray, Love. He was in The Cabin in the Woods, so this is in his first right. foray in horror. He was one of the uh, main Jack- guys controlling the machinery. He was in Jack Reacher, the original movie, White House Down, The Shape of Water, The Last Shift, which is also on a short list for a season here. Nice. Okay. Tying it all together. Yeah. I think... The last two we're going to talk about are, again, I'm pretty sure I feel like they were cast to let you know when you started watching this movie, what kind of movie it was going to be, just in case you had any doubts. The first was David Arquette, who plays Purvis. Yes. He's been in 145 titles, and I started to list them, and I was like, you know what? He has been in every television show, literally every... He's been in Friends. He's... It's just like anything you can think of, he's been in. So I skipped the TV stuff. Like Kurt Russell, you've probably seen him in lots of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was like one of his first movies that he was in. He's the guy from Scream. He was in Ravenous, Never Been Kissed, Muppets from Space. He was in a couple Muppets movies. Well, he a Muppet movie. Oh, yeah. And he's done a lot of WWE stuff. Which is really interesting to me, because he doesn't look like a big wrestling guy. I'm going to guess he plays some redneck. (laughs) Could be. The other guy who was definitely a nod into the horror genre was Sid Hay. He plays Buddy. He's been in 150 films. He premiered on The Untouchables in 1962. Uh, He was on the original Batman television show. He was on the original Star Trek episode. The Man from Uncle, his first foray into horror, to my knowledge as I was researching this, was Spider Baby, which, if you've not seen that gem, it is definitely worth a watch. <laughs> that sounds uh, great. <laughs> Gunsmoke, Get Smart, Mission Impossible, Wonder Woman. I didn't even know there was a TV series in 1973 of Wonder Woman. I thought Linda Carter was the first. Nope. Apparently oh, really? there was one in 1973. He was in that. Wow. Again, this guy's been on every television show ever. Um, and then you get into the modern era where people are going to know him because he's good friends with Rob Zombie. So he was in House of Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, The Lords of Salem, Three from Hell, all of which are Rob Zombie specials. He was in Hatchet 3, Call Back to Last Season, Kill Bill 2, Halloween, the 2007 version. So <laughs> I like how you got to say the year version yeah. <laughs> of those. So yeah, he's been in so many things, and as soon as you see him, at least nowadays, you're like, oh, that's the guy from all the horror movies. Yeah, yeah. The cave system that was in this film, at the end, towards the end of the film, is the same set that they used in Iron Man. That's where Tony Stark was building the original Iron Man suit. It's the same cave system. So you have the troglodytes posing 
look, Tony Stark was here, Iron Man. There's lots of other actors and actresses. This is something else I found really interesting who were cast as they started to get into production. It just clashed with their schedules, so they had to opt out. It includes Jim Broadbent, Peter Skarsgård, Jennifer Carpenter, Timothy Oliphant. He'd have been great in this. Yeah. Michael Wincott. A lot of big names who signed on. They wanted to be part of this film, but just because of scheduling, couldn't make it happen. And I love hearing these actors, Kurt Russell being one of them, that I want to do this. It's not the money. It's not the fame and glory. It's not going to be a big blockbuster. That kind of tells me a lot about their integrity and quality. Yeah. You don't... And it's the same list of people that you don't hear on TMZ all the time. So right. <laughs> figure that out. There are two really striking notes for me that are background notes that run throughout this whole film. The first is the very sparse use of music. I, I ha Of course, I put that down right there. <laughs> there is virtually no music throughout this whole song. There is a drum beat when the title card comes up. As they start to leave the town, there's... there's a forlorn little musical thing. Three and then measures nothing. or something. <laughs> and then when you get to the end, there is a song written specifically for the movie. It's called Four Doomed Men Ride Out that they perform during the final credits. There is a frontier town, a community of settlers and rogues and honest folk. Little did they know of the ancient race that dwelled beyond their borders. Four doomed men ride out. That's the first line of this kind of really doesn't rhyme kind of song <laughs> that sounds very tokenish though it sounds like something the elves would sing <laughs> yeah so yeah you have this very limited use of, of music throughout this which isn't necessarily indicative of a western but the next part is can, can i ask interrupt do you think leaving the music out helped or made the movie a little less than it could have been so there are certain films that immerse you in what's going on to the point that you don't even notice that the music's not playing. Castaway is a perfect oh, example yeah. of this. I was probably halfway through Castaway when I realized, oh my gosh, the only sounds are the ambient sounds because he's not even talking. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's one of those cases where it really helped. I think with this movie, there were one or two times where I was like, eh, they probably could have used some music there. But for a lot of the time, I didn't even I didn't even really notice that it wasn't playing. You know what I mean? I kind of agree. I was trying to figure out because there were like the bar scene we'll talk about in a couple minutes. I was like, there seems like it needs a little bit of music that it or something to help push the tension and what's going on. I agree. I think arguably you could probably find places to put it in that it would have enhanced that section doesn't need a whole john williams score through the whole movie but yeah so anyway i was just curious on your thoughts on that because i wrote that same thing down i noticed of course but no dogs oh, yeah. got killed that i could see so correct the drug lights might have but we don't know that no, i'm sure they kill pretty much anything they meet <laughs> anyway, um, you were gonna say what the other thing in this hap this is happens in westerns a lot some of the best westerns this patois when they speak Oh, yeah. Um, they dress and they look and they act like complete backwoods buffoons, but they speak with a vocabulary and a cadence which is far above the station that you expect. Yeah. And this happens. Clint Eastwood movies were good for this. Tombstone, yeah. a real good example of this. 
And this movie is the same way. And it starts at the beginning of the film. Agreed, yeah. Um, and so the movie starts with Purvis, uh, played by David Arquette. He is leaning over somebody with the dullest knife ever, trying to slice their throat while they're sleeping, as his partner, Buddy, goes through their stuff. And again, that's Sid Haig. So as soon as the movie starts, you have two horror movie veterans on screen. And I make a note of this later. I'm, for a large chunk of this movie, this is just a Western. It's a little gorier than most Westerns. And some of the violence, they don't shy away from it, but it doesn't really enter into the horror genre until the end. Yes. It had that offbeat feel for a horror. And, yeah. But the beginning, I made note that this beginning sequence was a bit comical. And then it went into horror, which is a very horror thing to do. You get that opening that you're a little chuckling and then suddenly something horrific happens and you're totally immersed into it. But then they got away from it again. So it yeah. definitely had a weird feel to it. Or that kind of Shakespeare gravedigger feel. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's perfect. And there you go. How many Westerns were based on Shakespeare anyway? So I guess that fits. Dead Man was the other movie I was thinking about. Quirky Western, Passion Project, big names, Johnny Depp's in the movie, elevated language and speech, a very bizarre film to be classified as a Western, but it's still a Western. Technically. So, yeah, I knew I'd come up with it before the end of it. <laughs> so Purvis is there slicing this guy's throat as Buddy's going through everyone's stuff. They've already killed everybody else. And from your their conversations, you can tell they've done this a lot and they're a good partnership. They work well together. And I love this because it wasn't like the normal Western where they walk up. All right, give us your money, stick them up. It was while they're sleeping, we're just going to cut their throats. Yeah. It makes, it's the logical way to go about it. If you're going to do it. Loved it. And that's pretty interesting for a David Arquette character. to think that (laughs) big. (laughs) Yes. And as soon as they start talking, there's that patois. They start speaking. They're talking quickly. They're using high language. They're even talking about important things. While the characters appear to be uneducated individuals, they're debating about how many arteries are in the neck that supply the brain with blood. You got to cut all 17. (laughs) 16, damn it. Yeah. It turns out Purvis didn't kill one of the victims who attempts to shoot him, um, but he he saved all the arteries. That's right. With that dull ass knife, it's not surprising. (laughs) Uh, he's saved by Buddy, but the gun goes off, and the sound draws some curious folk on horseback. And if you can say anything about Purvis, he's got good ears because he can hear the horses while they're still a ways out. Yeah. So they decide they're going to head up into the rocks to hide. On the way, they hear this ominous howling sound. And this is almost like soundtrack because this howling sound occurs throughout the film and they don't really call attention to it necessarily when it happens. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But if you if, especially if you've already seen it before, every time you hear it, you're like, ooh, that's not a good sound. And this is where I was like, okay, so where, what exactly is this leading to? Because that sound is an awful lot like the Bigfoot sounds you hear with all the Bigfoot shows and hunters and all that. And in a minute, it, you know, what happens, it was even questionable. Was that a person or was that a Bigfoot? Where, where is this mm-hmm. going? So yeah. that, and like you said, though, it was one of those, not, let's not show the monster right away. Yeah. Things get worse as they continue. 
They find animal skulls laid out in a decorative formation, culminating in a circle of staves and skulls, human included, attached to these staves. Purvis is concerned, but Buddy isn't. He's like, we're going to go, we're going through, and we're going to go through. You get another one of those whistle howling sounds, and Buddy just opens fire at the rustling grass, only to have it answered by catching an arrow in his neck. And they like um, to do that a lot. Just a sudden bam, there's an arrow was sticking through a person and he yeah. falls over. Purvis runs and this human figure comes out of the bush. It's really just a silhouette. That's all we can see. And he finishes off Buddy with, you're not really sure at this time what it is, but it turns out to be like the jawbone of an ass. They sharpen down one side of it. Purvis takes one shot wildly and then just keeps running. And then the title screen comes up. There's that one, that one drum note. Thump tells us the name of the film, and then it goes to another title screen, which tells us that we're jumping 11 days into the future. 11 days later. Now, after they jump to 11 days into the future, that card fades out, and you get this picture of a town called Bright Hope. You see a sign that says Bright Hope. You see a tree. You see a building. And it is so quiet, I thought something had happened to my playback. <laughs> I was like, is this frozen? Is but it wasn't. It's just a super silent shot. We see Owen's Owen Wilson's character sitting on a couch. He's reading a newspaper, his leg is splinted and he's arguing with his wife Samantha, played by Lily Simmons, over whether he's skulking or not. It turns out he's hurt himself falling off a roof and he's lamenting that he's missing opportunities. And his wife's lamenting that he's not happier to be stuck at home with her. It yeah. turns out he's a cowboy. He like herds horses or cattle from point A to point B, and the cattle drive left without him. He sounded because, like he's like the foreman, the the head guy or something is what it sounded yeah. like. So he was not happy. The scene cuts to a dark period of time. It like goes from this day where he's hanging out to a dark period of time. We see Purvis at the foot of a tree he's burying a bag of loot he had from earlier and there's a building with lit windows in the background and then there again there's that howl in the distance the camera cuts to inside what appears to be a relatively empty saloon there's a piano player asleep at the piano somebody's sweeping the barkeep is lamenting that the beeves have read out rode out leaving behind women children and dead enders as he says that bartender is actually played by Fred Melamed. He plays Clarence. That's the name of the bartender. Again, one of those guys who's been in a million things, classy films. He's been in 113 different movies, including The Manhattan Project, Ishtar, Silk Stockings, Hannah and Her Sisters. And the guy has done voiceover on everything, like NCAA Football 98, the video game, the Multipath of Superman video game, Grand Theft Auto 5, Diablo 3, Fallout 76, he was in WandaVision. So this guy's been around a lot for the bit part that he's playing. So when you say classy movies, you mean interpreted as the type we won't talk about. (laughs) Yeah, typically right. The highbrow films that we don't see. Too good for us. Yes. In walks Broder. He's wearing a white suit and hat. He's immaculately clean. He gives this kind of cursory look at the African-American gentleman who's sweeping, and then he completely ignores him and walks up to the bar. The bartender knows him, serves him a drink, and 
he goes to play the pay the pianist to wake up and play some music. So he goes over, and they have this whole discussion about how much it's three cents per song or three songs for a dime, and he's shouldn't it be cheaper? And the piano player's like, no, I get tired after three songs, so yeah. it's going to cost more. I love the that with the piano player because really it doesn't add a whole lot other than atmosphere. But it was totally different than any other. You know, always see the piano player with the sleeves. He looks like a card shark in there. Oh, he's happy and playing unless they're gun to him. And then it's like just trying to play. But this guy was like, yeah, screw you. Give me money. Oh, and then he has a fee, a a whiskey fee to even start. You owe him him a drink. Early capitalism at its best. Yes, he had a pillow on on the piano itself. So he moves the piano pillow and that's where the, it costs you a drink to have him play. And Broder's in his white suit, and just as this conversation about the piano was over, a man in a black suit enters. Yeah, the little symbolism there that we've yeah. never seen in Westerns. And then we cut away instantly to the sheriff's office, almost uncomfortably. So someone walks in, and before you can even recognize who it is, spoiler alert, it's Purvis, the camera jumps right to the sheriff's office. Chickory comes in and asks the sheriff for some of his soup. There's a lot of conversation about what kind of soup it is and the fact that, oh, that tastes about right. So this is good news. The sheriff gives him some, pours him a drink, and we find out that Chicory is a backup deputy. His wife appears to have passed, and he was on his way back from the cemetery. He saw someone he didn't know at the edge of town. And you're thinking, oh, that's a little paranoid. Burying a case and changing his clothes before heading into town. That's not paranoia anymore. That's <laughs> actual suspicion. So the sheriff and Chickory head over to the learned goat to investigate. As they go out, we cut to Arthur and his wife convincing him that it's a good idea for him to be stuck at home because they're just hanging out having sex. Right. Back at the bar, the bartender is pouring Purvis a drink as the sheriff comes in and the bartender grumbles. He's like, come on, man. It's the only customer I got. But the sheriff proceeds to question Purvis, who claims that his name is Buddy. And he's there to meet someone. And the sheriff calls him his bluff with this beautiful idea. He's like, what day is it? And Purvis can't tell him. And he's like, well, it's an odd thing for you to like be here and trying I to like, meet somebody. I like what you were saying about the classy talk and all that. And Kurt Russell's character is a little offbeat for most sheriffs and Westerns and spaghetti Westerns, especially because that... They showed him cooking. They showed him making something. And it wasn't just beans or something. It was... Yeah. It was... Corn chowder. Yeah. And then he he's very calm about it. And he uses his smarts. That type of trickery, you don't see a lot in Western. That's very brutal, straightforward. This was very much calm, methodical. And yeah, you're lying. And so yeah. it shows a lot for Kurt Russell's character. It's probably right why he liked the part so much. Yeah. When the sheriff finally confronts him about burying the bag. Purvis decides he's going to take off. Um, He runs into Chicory, who tries to stop him. He knocks Chicory down, and the sheriff's just not having any of it and puts a bullet in his leg, and he immediately falls down to the floor, passed out. Which, it it, it turns up later, that's not the first time he's stopped somebody by shooting him through the leg. (laughs) Yes. It's it's his signature. He tells Bruder to go get Doc Taylor and put some coffee in him if he's liquored. We're back to Arthur and his wife post-coitus as she mother hens him she's cleaning his wound and when you look at it you can see it wasn't just a break this was a compound fracture because there's like a break in the skin he playfully says 
she's taking good care of him and he asks if there's anything he can do for her. And she brings back this poem that he wrote while he was on the trail and she wants him to read it to her. And he's actually too shy to do it. He's about to try and there's a knock at the door. And it's Bruder there to get Samantha because the doctor is passed out drunk. And Samantha is like the town's backup doctor. So she grabs her bag and he escorts her back. We get to the jail and we meet young Nick, who is a beating chicory at a game of checkers. He's one of four brothers. Samantha's not happy to be there because the sheriff has a habit of shooting people in the leg. That's just what he does. The sheriff summarily just dismisses Bruder. Nick, it turns out, is a full-on deputy, not a backup like Chicory, and he's supposed to help Samantha with pulling the bullet out from Purvis's leg and then escort her, escort her home when she's done, and then the sheriff and Chicory head out. Before he goes home, the sheriff stops by to tell Arthur what his wife's up to, and in the conversation, we discover that the, camp, the sheriff has a wife who is ill. They were afraid it was pneumonia, but it was just a bad cold. After the sheriff leaves, Arthur tries reading his poetry out loud. He's like practicing maybe for when Samantha comes home. But, and he insists it ain't poetry. It's just his thoughts. He was writing down while he was on the trail. Back at the jail, Purvis wakes up as Samantha's removing the bullet. She needs to finish up. And as she says that, we hear that howling sound again. Yes. Now we cut to one of the guys who works at the bar. His name was Buford. He's got a lantern. He's headed out to take care of the horses for the night. And their odd horn, this odd howling sound is going on. He opens the barn door and is talking to the horses. And he is killed by that bone tomahawk that we mentioned earlier. And again, we don't really see this person or creature, whoever. Nope. Very Just see that he gets struck down. Yeah. We cut to Arthur. He wakes up in bed. It's dark. He's alone. So Samantha's late coming back. Cut to the next morning. The sheriff's with his wife, who's cutting up vegetables, and they're with a big-ass knife. That knife was huge. If you get one big knife, it does everything, rather than trying to pay and import and buy all these little knives. Yeah. They're arguing over her doing work, because she's been ill, and he thinks she should be taking it easy. But Clarence, the bartender, shows up at the house, and he went to take care of the horses in the morning and found Buford's body. And the horses are gone. When he went to the police station, it was empty, including the jail cell. So the sheriff grabs Chicory and they head over to the barn to investigate. Nobody's there. None of the horses there. Just the remains of poor Buford. Which is very gruesome to look at. His insides are literally sitting next to him and they show that. So it is pretty gruesome. If you are into horror movies, it's not beyond the pale of what you've seen. Yes. If you are coming here after watching, say, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, this is very graphic. Yes. They head to the jail, only to find out no one's there. There's an arrow in the wall, but it's not any arrow style that the sheriff recognizes. And it he was finds, weird looking. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like a little curly thing. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Uh-huh. So, so I'm going to jump a little bit here, and this is thinking after the movie. So we're, we can associate the howling with what happened. That's obviously what they want. But looking at this later, what is the real reason for these people, creatures, to come into this town other than revenge because Purvis got away? They seem to have avoided 
groups of people. They get them out. So for them to follow Purvis and get him and all these surrounding people in this town of people, it just, I don't know, it just seemed like it would be odd for them even later. But it, I guess the revenge aspect is what it was about is the only thing I could see. I came across an interview with, what's his name, Zoller? Yeah. The writer. Yeah, Zoller. I came across an interview with him. And again, like the guy who did Hold the Dark, really seemed pretty Hollywood. You know what I mean? The way he was talking and his mannerisms. I'm just not a big fan of that. But he was, the way he introduced the film is you have these two guys who disrupt a sacred burial mound. Yes. Because as Purvis is running away, he knocks one of the stacks of rocks over. Yes. And that is what brought the troglodytes out. And I guess that does make sense. It just seemed, it must be very strong, their religious convictions for this group, which it seemed like it is. That'd be kind of like us following Aquaman down to Atlantis to exact revenge. It's totally out of our element and totally a place where we have no advantage or anything. So it was just interesting. I get what you're saying. And at first I thought, but the horses, why did they kill Buford? And then I thought, if you're going to make the trip anyways, <laughs> yeah, horses are worthwhile. Right. Might as well take the horses. And, we, so, and jumping ahead a little bit, spoilers, they probably ate the horses and that's a lot of meat. So <laughs> it is a lot of meat for sure. The sheriff also finds Samantha's bag. So he sends Chicory to get someone called the professor and to bring him to the bar. So the sheriff heads over to see Arthur, and he tells him that Samantha's been taken, and Arthur heads to the bar. The sheriff closes up his house for him and grabs his boots. And I love, that's one of the things I love about this character is the sheriff knows better than to argue with him. To say, hey, you're on crutches, your leg's badly broke, you, we're, we got this. He's, he's not even going to, doesn't even try to argue with him. The professor shows up. He's played by Zane McLaren. He has been in, he was in Hawkeye. He was in Dr. Sleep. And I love his role of the sheriff in Reservation Dogs. Okay. Awesome. He's a great actor. And it's a shame in my mind how often, what little he is in this film. He informs the sheriff that the arrow doesn't belong to a tribe. But to cave dwellers, the professor goes on to say they aren't considered Indians, but troglodytes. They're cannibals. The professor won't go after them. Bruder accuses him of not wanting to go against his own. And he's like, no, it's because you're all going to die. But he will show them where they're at on a map. Which is interesting because what you said earlier with the racism and stuff and Bruder considers himself above those lesser beings. Here's one that he considers a lesser being that seems smarter than him that probably rankled him a lot it was an there's another little bit of a culture clash because he's smart and from a different uh race than bruder in in bruder's mind so there's a clash right there again lot you could probably pick out lots of little things like that throughout this yeah and this is one of the one of the big things that people who don't like this movie complain about with the racism is that if you take the professor out of it, you just have 
Indians versus Cowboys, and the Indians are cannibalistic savages. Right. In an effort to paste over that a little bit, they put an Indian in for five minutes who says, oh, no, they're bad even to us. <laughs> and that's what I mean by lazy writing. Yeah. You could have come up with a better way to distance this. These are not Native Americans. These are something far beyond. I can see that. And this is right where I made the note. This movie isn't very politically correct, but it's probably accurate. <laughs> correct. And so I actually did some research on cannibalism in Native American tribes. There were reports that I don't necessarily hold in very high esteem about the Iroquois being cannibalistic, but they were made by like Augustinian monks who were here during colonization and how you can always twist things however you want to justify what you're doing. Yeah. But it must not have been unheard of because there are actual notes in the Sioux nations about how cannibalism is a sin. So it, for them to have rules against it, it must have yeah. been something that existed. I just don't think it's anything that was prevalent or anything like that. Yeah. And I, I think there's probably some cases of maybe going on a war hunt against an enemy and then eating parts of them or brain, like eating the Buffalo and getting some of their essence or something like that. I can I, see, but I don't know of any specific. So you have four guys. You have Arthur and the sheriff and Broder and Chicory is going. There's this scene where Arthur's packing stuff up and the sheriff's packing up and Chicory just stops and drops off flowers at his wife's grave, which I thought was touching. Yeah. I um, love Chicory throughout the whole thing, too. He's Oh, he's, yeah. He's almost comic relief, but not quite. It's enough to lighten the mood throughout the movie without making him like a bumbling Im imbecile. And I think a very accurate portrayal of an older gentleman. Yeah. All of us, as we're getting older, I'd like to think that I'm going to be out there doing all this stuff. And the <laughs> truth of the matter is I'm not because I'm older now and my body's taken a bit of a beating just like his. So it's not the years, it's the miles. Yeah. They ride off. And as they do, that's where the song comes in. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> three measures of it, this somber music as they ride off. They stop after a bit, and Bruder helps Arthur off his horse. They rely a lot on Arthur's trail knowledge because he's a cowboy. That's what he does. But they're at the edge of his trail knowledge because they're right at nobody goes the direction they're headed. So they fill their water skins and head off into this beautiful country. And this is another, like the second big Western trope that we have here giant beautiful vistas of the west and people shot in such a way that you see how big it is yes because you have all these people shot small big backgrounds they refill their water skins head off into this beautiful country they stop for a night and brooder stringing this line with bells on it and he offends chicory by indirectly insulting the sheriff by saying that he'll if anybody rings that bell, he'll shoot them dead, and he'll do it before anybody else in the party gets a chance to. So Chicory calls him out, and we see how arrogant he is. He's like, I'm the smartest guy here. I'm the most skilled. I'm the handsomest guy. I am just super awesome. And see, the whole I can reason, relate to him a lot, because yeah. I often feel that way. <laughs> the whole reason that he said he was going along was because... In, they call him out on it as a brag. He says, I've killed more Indians than anyone here. 
and someone says, is that a brag? Sounds like you're bragging. The sheriff says, sounds like you're bragging. And he's like, it's not a brag. It's just a fact. Here is one of the soldiers who fought in the Indian Wars. So he has been out um, and has killed lots of people. And we found out later just how many people he has. <laughs> yeah, he knows. Yeah, he's kept track. So he strings up this line with bells on it. And anything that rings those bells, because he asks if anybody sleepwalks, if anything rings those bells, he's just going to shoot first, ask questions later. They prepare a meal, and Arthur tries to give a blessing, but he's broken up by the loss of his wife, and he can't get through it. I found it very interesting that he crossed himself, which indicates that Arthur was of Catholic background, which I don't know how commonplace that was in frontier settlers. Yeah, and, but maybe they did it on purpose, and it helped set them apart or something. Could yeah. be, I just, a lot of times when you see things, when religion comes up in movies, especially horror movies, it's always the Catholic Church. That's because it's very visual to see that someone's yes. crossing. Yep, it's got a whole lot of visual cues. Yeah. Chicory and the con- and the sheriff have this conversation about books and a bath. And at the end of the conversation, Roger sits up and shoots, and you hear a coyote yelp and run away. So it shows, yeah, Bruder might be arrogant, but maybe he's got reason to. Exactly. The next day, we see that Arthur is flagging a bit. They stop for water, and Arthur stops to check his wound. It's really not good. He pours some alcohol on it and changes the bandages, then contemplates taking some opium. The sheriff calls him out on the opium, and he gets pissed off and says he hasn't had any, and then he hands it over to the sheriff to keep him from temptation and apologizes for yelling at Chicory. That night, Chicory checks Arthur's leg, and the topic of amputation comes up. Chicory had amputated legs in the past, I'm assuming Civil War. That night, Chicory, oh, they hear something, and they draw weapons on this guy named Ramiro. He and his friend meekly surrender. They're Mexican. And Bruder shoots them anyways. The sheriff's upset. Guns are pointed at each other. You have this whole Mexican standoff, for lack of a better term. Logic kind of seems sound, that these are, like, people who are out looking for people to rip off. There's a couple culture clashes right there. They were Mexican against a bunch of white guys. That could be it right there. It, they were, po- at this point, possibly thieves. So it's a, if you stop it, I could see a, a college class discussing the ethics. Should he have shot them or not? If he brings them in and then they shoot their guys, then should he have shot them earlier? Or was he right in waiting till well, they killed us, so now we're good to do it? There's a lot of ethics in that, and Westerns did that a lot, so that that fit very well. It crossed my mind more than once when I was watching Hold the Dark, when the sheriff goes up to talk to Chiuk at the door. Yeah. How many lives would have been saved if he had just shot him right there? And that's Granted, that's against the law, but... The superheroes, you get that same argument. If they capture this big supervillain and put him in prison, if you know they're going to escape again and kill a thousand people again, is it really making you that bad of a person to kill them? Because you, oh, my moral ethics don't allow me to kill a person, so I'll let them live so they can kill a thousand people. <laughs> Ethically, which is better? Yeah. But then you go all the way back to season one, episode one with martyrs. And, you know, what happened to Lucy? Was that acceptable? Exactly. You know? It's the same argument. It's a good discussion brought out through movies. Yeah. 
Chicory goes to inspect the bodies and he finds that one of them has a cross on him. Arthur asks if they were armed and Chicory replies, they move camp to somewhere else that's easier to defend and we wake up to find somebody is stabbing Bruder. Arthur shoots the guy. The horses are gone with the exception of Bruder's who he says would never let a greaser ride in because he's so charming. The horse is wounded, so he gets up to kill it and put it out of its misery, and they are now horseless. So, he was proving, and even with all his prep, he was had to kill his own horse. You know, that, that, that could be so, a good discussion there, too. <laughs> but there's the argument, was he right, or was this, like, companions of those Mexicans who came across their murdered friends? That's true. And were just out for vengeance, because if right. you were just going to steal the horses, just take the horses. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, true. But they were doing the same thing that Purvis and Buddy were doing at the beginning of the show. And as far as we know, they had no impetus to do it other than stealing money. That's true. Well, but Purvis and Buddy, when they did it, they slit people's throats while they slept. They didn't sit there and stab them. <laughs> but this guy stabbed him in the arm. You know what yeah. I mean? Which doesn't necessarily lend itself to a killer disposition. Maybe they were just incompetent. <laughs> Could be. Arthur's going to fall behind no matter what. So he plans on making up ground while they sleep. They plan to compact their gear just down to the essentials, sleep during the day, and travel at night. Arthur just packs up and heads out right away to give himself a head start. Chicory still is hopeful, and Bruder remains all by himself. He's lost his horse. So we cut to Arthur limping along by himself in the dark, then in the morning, then during the day. And during that stretch of the day, the rest of the party catches up to him. They travel along together, and Chicory wonders about his horse in the afterlife, and Bruder bitches about him, just rambling. Um, Chicory asks if he'd rather listen to shuffling footsteps and men breathing. The party leaves Arthur behind, as they do, and Broder foreshadows his future by envying Chicory's dead horse. Yes. So again, a slight lighthearted moment as they're walking. Of course, I didn't quite understand. What's the benefit of them getting ahead? of Arthur and then he catches up and gets less sleep when he actually needs more and they move at the same pace. And I don't know. I just felt like they should have just stayed with him, but that really didn't have much to do with the movie. I think it was kind of pushes himself. Yeah. The sheriff's whole thing was we need to get there as soon as we possibly can. And I'm not going to stop you from coming, but we're not going to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. It was very consistent. And and I guess it shows the times also. The party wakes him up at dusk, and Bruder says something about rescuing Arthur's wife. He's some smart-ass comment, and Arthur punches him in the face, stepping on his broken leg, and he collapses as he does. Bruder admits to having had feelings for Samantha long ago, but she refused him, and he's past it. Chicory checks the wound, and they're like, we're going to have to take this off, and he refuses to have it done. But he makes Chicory set it. Chicory gets out this hammer. They give him some opium. And then set his leg, and he's out. They leave him at dusk, just laying there, passed out. They're traveling along, and they hear a howl as evening falls. Bruder recognizes it as the same howl from back at Bright Hope. He goes on to admit that during the Indian Wars, he killed women and children. And Chickory asks him why he hates so hates them so much, and it's he says it's because they killed his mother and sisters. He says that he killed 116 total over the period of the Indian Wars, recognizes the howl they hear that evening as the same that he heard back in the town of Bright Hope. 
He then goes on to admit that he killed women and children, and Chicory asks him why he hates them so much, and he says it's because they killed his mother and his sisters. Yeah. We cut to daylight. They're really close now. And the howl has been getting louder and really starting to sound scary and ominous, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. Bruder, in a peace offering, lets Chicory use the German. That's his fancy telescope. Which I like how they refer to it. It's like the only thing Germans make is this telescope, so you can know exactly what we're talking about. I guess Glassware. it was before they were doing the BMWs. Yeah. Um, they're looking out across this place to a rift that has several different valleys, and they're supposed to be finding, I can't remember what the name of the valley is they're looking for, but yeah. that's where the troglodytes live. So they decide to check the nearest valley and move from one to the other. But on their way down to the first valley, they find horse tracks, which leads them towards the correct one. As they move in, we see those same skull decorations along the trail walls that we saw back with Purvis and Buddy. Yep. Bruder leads this way into this narrow canyon-walled area. He's going to go in, and if they don't hear from him in 30 seconds, they're just supposed to go. But he throws this rock out, which lets them know that he's okay. So they head in, and they see an open cave up on a cliff face. They start to plan an assault, and while they do, they get hit with rocks. Lots of rocks and Which an arrow. Which, again, is a Bigfoot trope. So you have oh, the rocks and, yeah, Bigfoot throwing rocks. So still, at this point, I'm thinking, is it a Bigfoot movie? It's is not. it monsters? Yeah. Or maybe these creatures were what were what we call Bigfoot now that we whatever. So a rock catches Chicory in the head, and then one hits Broder's left arm and breaks it. Yeah. The sheriff takes an arrow to the left arm, and the troglodytes rush them. Chicory manages to shoot one with his shotgun. The sheriff manages to shoot two, so that's three down. Every time they shoot one. They make this strange accordion-like sound when they die. Bruder takes the repeating rifle and the dynamite and tells the other two not to come back until he's used the dynamite. He says he's far too vain to live as a cripple. He <laughs> wants a cigar, so Chicory helps him with a cigar, and he admits to having killed 116 Indians. And they leave him, and he says he'll kill as many as he can. Um, he flips one over and sees what makes these odd sounds we've been hearing. Uh, they have a piece of bone that they've attached into their throat by the, just below their larynx. Yeah. When they exhale, it gives this whistle sound. Just as Bruder makes this realization, another one shows up and throws a tomahawk at him. The camera cuts away and we hear a gunshot. Not now. <laughs> now, the guy who went on that, that whole long screed about why you shouldn't even watch this movie because it's so racist, one of his points was he didn't like the fact that Bruder the racist bastard that he is got a hero's death. And okay. I thought that's a little ridiculous because that's just his character. That yeah. was just his character. And that's just how his character died. I don't know that Zeller, when he wrote this was like saying, I agree with this guy and I agree with his stance on other races. I'm going to elevate him to a high place in culture by having him die as a hero. I think it was just, here's this guy and this is the situation he's in. Yeah, true, but I don't necessarily agree either, but you can't dismiss it as, oh, you can't argue that fact. And there's, You could support it, so I'll at least give him that. As the sheriff and Chicory are leaving, Chicory gets hit in the hand with an arrow. 
The sheriff shoots another guy. And then one jumps out from behind and grabs Chicory, and another one knocks the sheriff to the ground and begins to strangle him. After a brief struggle, the one who knocked out Chicory knocks the sheriff out as well, and they're being drug off. Chicory wakes up briefly to see the one Broder shot lying dead um, and Broder with a jawbone stuck in his skull. Yeah, that was pretty gruesome. That's some powerful hit there. Yeah. And right here, I put up until this point, this movie could have just been a pretty standard, albeit gory Western film. Yeah. And this is where it kind of the wheels fall off. At the base of the cliff, one of them throws his head back and yells, which combines with the resonator in his throat to make this odd, eerie howling sound. Um, After two calls, a line is thrown from the cliff and they're tied around Chicory and the sheriff who are drug up the cliff face. The jostling wakes up the sheriff who comes to in a dark cave just outside of a cage. Samantha and Nick are in the adjacent cage and tells him to get into the cage or the troglodytes will kill him. It turns out Nick's not doing well, and as for purpose, they ate him. And so now we find out that the troglodytes are cannibals. As they're having this conversation, the troglodytes return and Samantha says, no, not him. And we get a good look at the troglodyte as he comes in. They're covered in white clay coating. They have bones threaded throughout their skin in various places. This one guy has them through his cheeks. They look like mandibles almost. Um, he turns and gives a shriek to another, and another troglodyte comes in and they drag Nick out. And I like the covering because they live out in the desert. They're out and about all the time. So that's uh, an animal protection, covering yourself in the mud and protecting yourself. It's yeah. early sunscreen. Uh, yeah. But it gives him a really horrific look. It does. They strip Nick and he wakes up. He goes on to confirm for the sheriff that Purvis was evil and he killed a lot of people. And then he explains that Purvis desecrated the troglodyte burial ground, bringing them into Bright Hope. He then asks the sheriff to send his belongings back to his brothers. And the sheriff tells him that a whole cavalry of deputies are on their way to kill all the troglodytes. Then they proceed to very graphically scalp him and then hold him upside down as they split him in half. Yeah, that was really gruesome. Don't go watching this one with the kids. (laughs) Or date night. (laughs) Yeah. Some time passes and we see one standing outside Samantha's cage, chewing on what looks like a severed lowered leg, I'm assuming belonging to Nick. Um, He paces out and Chicory asks the sheriff about the posse of deputies coming to the rescue. Is it true? And When he finds out that there really isn't a posse coming to rescue them, he wants to know why the sheriff said it. And he said, if they were doing that to me, it's the only thing I'd want to hear. Samantha then asks Arthur, asks about Arthur, and they tell her that he was injured and he was convalescing. Chicory then says they left a trail and she asks why. And when they say so, he could follow. She's like, frontier life is so difficult, not because of the Indians or the elements, but because of the idiots. Which is one of my favorite lines of all time. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. The sheriff and Chicory end up calculating how many they've killed, and their number's pretty far off. They say three, but the sheriff shot three by himself. Chicory shot one, and Bruder killed one. So they've killed five, by my count. Yeah, yeah. They ask Samantha how many are in the clan, and she says 12 males, maybe more, with two pregnant, crippled, blind females. And that comment just goes by and you don't give it a second thought till the end of the movie. The sheriff asks Chicory about the whiskey vial and which he whether or not he's got it. Chicory does, but it has tincture of opium in it. And the sheriff's plan is to use it to poison the troglodytes. Which you gotta love. 
the, they just carry around this stuff to help you get knocked out a little bit when your leg needs cut off, but don't take too much because it will kill you. I mean, oh yeah. Give it, we've sure. got stuff like that nowadays, but their measurements aren't exactly accurate. Two fingers no, not, worth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we now cut to Arthur. He's asleep. He wakes up with a gasp and sees that his leg's been set and he slowly makes his way to the valley. He's really struggling. He falls down a slope. He tells his leg it's not going to stop him. He takes some opium. He keeps on going. On the way, he looks down and literally falls asleep on his feet. He hears troglodytes calling and it wakes him up and he petitions to God. He's like, why? this is why I've been praying to you all these years. He's crawling across a dry creek bed covered in stones. And I kept thinking the four stone marker won't help you much down here because there's stones everywhere. I was wondering about that, but whatever. He lays down to rest and proceeds to fall asleep with his hand on his gun. Back in the cave, the troglodytes, three of them, return to the cages, and the sheriff pretends to be drinking from this flask. Chicory begs him for a taste, and the troglodytes go for it. He hides it away, but they draw a knife, and he seemingly surrenders it. One drinks some and spits it out. Another drinks some, a third drinks some as well, throwing the empty flask on the fire. When they leave, Samantha proceeds to tell the sheriff, based on how much they drank, what will happen. One will fall asleep, one will die, and the third won't be affected at all. Back in that dry gulch, Arthur's asleep, and two troglodytes sneak up on him. They fire an arrow at him, which startles him awake. This whole scene stresses the importance of taking your time and aiming. Yes. Uh, The troglodyte doesn't really aim. He fires and misses. Arthur wakes up and he shoots both of them, but he goes through six bullets doing it. (laughs) And he kills one of them outright, shoots the other one who and breaks his bow and wounds him. The other one looks for the tomahawk his friend dropped, picks it up and walks over. And as he's doing it, Arthur's rapidly trying to reload. And then Arthur shoots him. So he fired seven bullets to kill two people. Right. Then Arthur notes the whistle and cuts it out. Yeah, that was pretty gruesome, too. The stringers and stuff. Yeah. After he pockets it, he wipes his hands and continues on his way. He makes it to that cut where the sheriff and Chicory were taken, sees their gear, and realizes he needs to proceed with caution. Looking around, he notes he thinks there's a back way. Smart guy. Instead of taking the main path in, find a way around. So he begins to make his way around the back way, lays down and pulls out that bone whistle, and gagging while he does it, (laughs) manages to blow through it, replicating the whistle sound. Which I was like, wow, that's a really smart thing to do. It does. It draws one of the the troglodytes out, and he shoots it. It's still alive, but suffering, and he puts it out of its misery. Uh, Crawling a little further, he sees the burial ground, and he asks God, are you seeing this? So apparently he really expects some divine intervention, which you could argue he gets. Yeah. Back in the cage room, the sheriff asks Samantha if she's eaten. And then Chicory has this whole thing where he talks about a flea circus. Yeah. And whether or not the fleas are actually alive and whether or not it's real. And Samantha is aware of the act and she seems to confirm for him that, yes, the fleas were real. Just like... She wants to make people feel better. That's just her person. This little discussion is interrupted by an angry wailing, and two troglodytes come in dragging the dead third. They open the cage with the two men in it, and the sheriff rushes them, but there's two of them, and they drop him pretty quickly. And Chicory, again, 
perfect example of the old man, tries to get out. They just kick him back in the cage. Then they tie the sheriff's feet together, open his shirt, cut him open on the left side, take the flask from the fire, and stuff it into the open wound in his belly. Yeah, that was horrible. Yes. (laughs) Not quite as bad as poor Nick, but... Yes. That wakes him up, because when they tackled him, he hit his head and he was a little dazed. They take the repeater and shoot him in the arm. And then they point the barrel at his testicles, um, but they don't know how to cock a gun. Yeah. So they pull the trigger and nothing happens. And this is another little culture thing, because Hickory calls them dumb savages or something like that. They can't even figure out how to use a gun. I think they did quite effective with arrows and skull bones to kill people. And rocks, yeah. So just because it seems like these dumb savages that can't figure out how to cock a gun got you in prison. There's a little culture thing there. And in five minutes, they figure out how to cock a gun. Yeah, really quick. (laughs) There's a howl from outside, which draws their attention, and one heads out of the cave to investigate. While he's away, the other accidentally figures out how to cock the rifle. Then there's another gunshot from uh, gunshot from outside the cave, and a screech, and that draws the guy's attention. The sheriff yells out to Arthur to tell him there's an armed troglodyte in there, and the troglodyte shoots the sheriff in the belly opposite side of the flask. Yeah. Thinking the sheriff's handled, the boar-tusked troglodyte turns to investigate the commotion outside, but the sheriff's not handled. He grabs a tomahawk off the floor and brings it down, cutting the troglodyte's right foot in half. Now, that was not only a super sharp piece of bone, but super strength from a guy that's dying from a gunshot and a flask wound. Yeah. (laughs) That was like, wow, that's impressive. The troglodyte screams in pain, and Arthur's in the doorway and shoots him. He's not quite dead yet, so the sheriff proceeds to take the tomahawk and behead him. Yeah. Again, Again, super strength. (laughs) Yes. Seeing Samantha, Arthur immediately goes over and kisses her. The sheriff tells him there's at least three more out there, and he's going to stay behind and kill the remaining ones. And Chicory should escort Arthur and his wife home. Arthur asks him if there's anything he can do for him, and he says, put the repeater in my hand. And as the O'Dwyers leave, Chicory sticks around just a little bit, and the sheriff tells him to tell Arthur what his wife is seen. And then he says, say goodbye to my wife. I'll say hello to yours. Yeah, that was a good line. That was pretty good. The survivors make their way out the door where they see the two amputee women. When they mean amputee women, like their legs and arms have been cut off just below the torso and stakes have been driven into their eyes. And the stakes are still there. Yes. Uh, that's, that was really horrific. <laughs> yeah. And Arthur just passes them by. He had been doing them a kindness, uh, actually shoot them both, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Once he gets outside, he blows on the whistle and no one comes. So then they decide they're going to proceed. Chicory picks up a stone because he doesn't have any guns and he's following behind. On the way back, Arthur stumbles a bit and Samantha helps him. She says she'd love a kiss, but she's offended by all the crap that he's been putting in his mouth of late. (laughs) Which wasn't great. (laughs) They then hear three gunshots in the distance. Chicory smiles and throws away his rock. And then we roll credits and cue the trumpet music for Doomed Men Ride Out. So That is Bone Bone Tomahawk. There we go. So if you're looking for a typical Western, this isn't it. Uh, Definitely not. Typical horror, this really isn't it either. Even if you're looking for Western horror, you might not want to stop here. Yeah. Because this is a pretty grim film. 
It is. If you like a lot of the like indie art films that we do, this is definitely one of them. It fits into that sure. that slot really well. It's got some a few Western tropes, but it doesn't feel Western like it, it's only a Western story almost. Yeah, it was interesting. If yeah, else. it was, and I I'm sure this wasn't planned, but honestly the kind of racist themes that are in it sit in an unsettled manner with me almost as much as some of the imagery that you see in the movie as it plays along. It's, it's like a good pairing. It's not, it, neither of these things are things that should be necessarily celebrated, but they work well together. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of good films. That's, you know what they do and we mentioned several right here it opens up questions if you were watching this in an ethics class you there's many spots to pause and discuss saying like you mentioned martyrs there's another one with ethic and moral type discussion that you could have very easily horror, horror can bring that out uh yeah it's very well just like sci-fi can bring out your current culture and political things that you can't necessarily do in a modern drama sci-fi can do it horror can bring out some things like this and it fits well and again for the time period i would say this is probably closer to accurate how they thought and talk than most of the westerns we've seen movies. yeah if you were easily offended by this stuff you definitely don't want to watch this film it's gonna upset you yeah but it goes back i had this conversation with brian this past weekend about the horror movie why i like them so much and i'm like they can say a whole heck of a lot in the little bit that you're sitting there watching they can bring up super big issues that you'll sit and think about for days on end and you never know what's going to happen right the person you think is the hero might die 20 minutes in and you're just sitting there going what in the world it's a complete mystery as you're going ahead so yeah, and definitely the stuff you've picked out for us to review and talk about does not fit typical. It's not Insidious. It's not Jason. And yeah. So, I, I don't waste our time reviewing bad movies. We're, we watch elevated horror. Yes. We save the bad movies for when, you know, we're hanging out together. Yeah, for personal choices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we don't make you guys sit through us talking about those. All right. So there we go. What's next? What's the third episode? We're going back to Ireland, and this one's called The Hallow. The Hallow. Nice. Can't wait. All right, another one I haven't seen. That's what I'm framing for. <laughs> Good. So there we go. Look for The Hallow. And hopefully by the time people are seeing, hearing, watching this one, which if you don't listen on the podcast, uh, there's also YouTube. If you're on YouTube, go check out the podcast. The website has it all. By the time that comes out, we're trying to get on a regular schedule. They're coming out how many there will be, when there'll be. It'll help our hectic lives along with being more professional, which we've already ascertained. I'm very professional. Strive for professionalism. Yes, that's my goal. All right, ma'am. Talk to you later. Take it easy, Steve. You have been listening to Horror Lasagna. To see all of our seasons and listen to all of the movie reviews with all the themes for each season, check out horrorlasagna.com. And if you like the podcast, like the movies and reviews, please give us a like, share with a friend, subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, pass it along, let people know.
tell us, hey, I liked it. That was a good movie. Thank you. We would appreciate it. The creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise.